0: Today's scripture reading comes from Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus, and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of God.
1: We're about to wrap up our our series on our survey of the Bible as we look at all these passages that we probably heard at some point as children. And uh, this is a bit uh, of an unusual story. I mean, if you've been in the church, you've probably heard it at some point in your life. Um, Last week, you know, we looked at Nicodemus, and from Nicodemus, from that narrative, we, we learn that change is so radical that becoming a Christian, that change is so it's so transformational, it's it's such such a radical change that Jesus himself calls it the new birth. And because we see that because Nicodemus was completely changed. Um, the fact is, in that society, uh, if you read the book of Acts, we see here that Christianity, it wasn't just an individual transformation, but Christianity spread after the return of Jesus Christ, after his ascension. Christianity spread so rapidly and so powerfully. You see this documented not just in Christian scholarly texts. If you read Rodney Stark, uh, A Rise of Christianity, he, he uses actual data Uh, data historical evidence to show that Christianity spread very rapidly and it never would have made it out of the first century well at least Rodney Stark concludes that there's something there it had to have been real because the claims are so crazy and uh, of Christianity so so wild that it never would have made it out of the first century so the change is so rapid and so powerful people didn't come to faith in Christ through means of subversion. They became converted. It was through means of conversion. And like Nicodemus, the changes were so personal and radical, it changed the entire society. How did it do that? And we see that here, the explanation, the components of that here in this passage. Uh, In this passage, we see this Ethiopian eunuch converted and it teaches us three things about how that actually happens in our lives and possibly in our community as well. Conversion is an upward change. Conversion is an outward change. Conversion is an inward change. Those are the three points. Upward, outward, inward. Uh, Three points about how conversion happens. First, we're going to look at uh, conversion as an upward change. Conversion is upward, meaning that it needs the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that upward agent of change. He produces change. He produces conversion. The Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, changes our hearts to see things that we don't normally like to see about ourselves and to see the reality, the deeper reality of Jesus Christ and uh, the change that he brings. Now, the first four verses of this uh, passage, they're very, very specific. And I'm going to walk through the entire text with you briefly, but there's this, what you see here is there's this divine direction That starts with verse 26. The Holy Spirit guides and directs Philip and the apostles. Verse 26, go south to the desert road to Gaza. The Holy Spirit is leading Philip. And then he's on this road, and on this road he meets this Ethiopian eunuch uh, who's on his way back home. He's on his way back to Ethiopia. Verse 29, the Holy Spirit tells Philip, go to that chariot. Stay near that chariot. So here's Philip. This chariot is ahead of him. Philip is running up to this chariot, trying to stand near this chariot, meaning that the chariot is still moving, and Philip is running up to this chariot. Why? Why did he do that? It's because God told him to do that. The Holy Spirit told him so. And so Philip says, I see you're reading something here. Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch says, yes, I'm reading it. It's confusing to me. Somebody needs to explain this to me. Philip is running alongside. Now, first of all, if you read this story, a lot of the reasons why we don't read passages like this in the Bible is because, let's face it, they're not sexy passages. They're, they're boring. And uh, the thing about uh, this, you would never, in those ancient uh, times, you would never make up a story like this and try to sell it, try to pawn it off to somebody for fiction. You would never do that. A- if you read anything from ancient literature, they're never structured or written in this way. This type of genre did not exist in that ancient era of writing so uh, where you wrote something about the mundane aspects of life and try to pawn that off as fiction we do that today a lot of our movies and our books are written as if things are happening in real time and you can imagine the conversation to be very very realistic they didn't write, write like that back then so you would never sell something like this for fiction what's the author of the book of acts doing that's luke by the way what's luke doing Luke isn't writing fiction. He's telling us news. He's telling us good news. And it teaches us that the Holy Spirit is involved in every aspect of our change. God is involved in every aspect. From the moment that you first conceive the need to change, that's God working in your life. In fact, I'm going to say this. If you're sitting there and saying, I'm a skeptic, I, am, I'm a, I don't have belief for, for a long time in my life, I did not believe, why are you here? Well, I'm here because I'm inquiring. We in our Western society look at that and we say, well, that's us in our intellect saying, making a choice to inquire. But in actuality, the Bible looks at it very differently. That means that the Holy Spirit put inquiry in your heart and is moving you from the get go. The Spirit is involved in every aspect of our conversion. Why? Why does that happen? In Matthew chapter 28, you have Jesus Christ, and there you hear the Great Commission. And the Great Commission goes like this: Go and make this, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Right? He says, He's basically what he's saying is this: He says, I want you. I want the message of the gospel. I want the message of salvation through grace, through the grace of God, through my grace, to spread to people of all nations, to spread to all peoples, not just your people, not just people of your color. Now, Jesus is commanding this, but it takes God to move us. If you look at Philip, Philip never, if you think about Philip's story, Philip is a middle-aged Jew. He has no business going near. He's a a middle-aged Jew in probably a lower class of Jews. He has no business going near a black man, an Ethiopian man who is of high class. They would have no business being near each other unless God moved him. They're in completely separate cultures, completely separate races, completely separate societies. In fact, the Ethiopian was on his way back home. There would be no reason, there's no incentive to run up to that man's chariot. Why would he do it? God is calling him to do it. This is Philip. He never would have done this on his own. The Ethiopian eunuch was different race, different ethnicity, different culture, different language, different socioeconomic class, different educational class, different status, and he's on his way back home. He did it because the Holy Spirit compelled him to. The Holy Spirit moved him. And he didn't move him against God's command, against Jesus' command, but in line with God's command. It's why you can't say to anybody, well, the Holy Spirit's speaking to me and that's why I did what I did. It always has to be in line with God's command. It always has to be in line with the word of God. And so Philip was merely affirming the word of God as he was doing what he was doing. Now notice, Philip goes out of his way to meet with this man. There's a pattern there. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus goes to Jesus at night. He goes out of his way to see Jesus. In John chapter 4, Jesus goes out of his way to see the Samaritan woman. What does that teach us? The gospel always transcends racial boundaries, cultural boundaries, ethnic boundaries. And that teaches us that God is so mindful. If it teaches us anything, God is so mindful of us that he will go out of his way to meet us where we are. God is so mindful. God is always thinking about his people. He's so planned out, so intentional, and his work is so powerful. His calling has effect. When, he, when you call somebody, they may not answer. You're going to get their voicemail. It may take a while before they get back to you. When God calls you, it always has effect. He always reaches you. And that should be a comfort to us. That should be a comfort because that means that, you know, that fact that it is God's work It's not based on our work, but it's even salvation itself. Coming to conversion itself is God's work. It's something that he does. You know, uh, it should be a comfort to us because what that means is that no one is beyond God's reach. If he calls, there's always effect. No one is beyond God's reach. John chapter 6, Jesus Christ says, No one comes to the Father... Except lest the Son of Man draws him. No one comes to the Father unless the Holy Spirit. Unless the Son of Man draws him. That word "draw" is uh, is akin to a prisoner. It's not like uh, you drawing water from a well. That phrase, uh, "Unless the Son of Man draws him," that's a prisoner fighting to go in prison. He doesn't want to go to prison, so he's holding on to everything as you're dragging him into prison. Jesus is saying that you will fight every intention. Of God's call. You will fight it till, you will fight every step. But if God calls, you are be you will be dragged over to him and you will come. That's what the text is saying. That should be a comfort to us. We're always fighting, but we're drawn in. Now, because of that, the Holy Spirit desires for all social barriers to be overcome. And what that means is because of the Holy Spirit, this is the end of racial prejudice. This is the end of bigotry. This is the end of chauvinism. This is the end of class oppression. Because it's the end of pride. It's the end of self-justification. It's the end of a superiority complex between races. It's the end of jealousy. It's the end of comparing yourself with other people, comparing your race with other people's races. You know why? Because the reality is that every race has, has tremendous blessings. And every race has flaws, tremendous flaws. So if you're looking down at other ethnic groups, if you're looking down at other social classes, you're actually going against God. You're actually going against God's intent. If, Peter, if Philip only looked at color, the color of a person, if, P, if Philip only looked at the wealth of a person, because he's not wealthy, he never would have looked at, he never would have met this Ethiopian man, you see, The Holy Spirit comes regardless of your credentials, regardless of your pedigree. He comes into your ego, and then he overcomes your ego so that you will see your brokenness. The one brokenness that is important for you to see then is your own. You don't need to look at other people's brokenness. The one brokenness that will have effect in your life is your own. You need to look at that, and the Holy Spirit will unveil your eyes to see it. And then you realize, you start to realize at least, that everybody here in this room is on the same plane. All cultures have merits. All cultures are broken. And if you get the gospel, because of the Holy Spirit, you will be compelled to undermine your own heart, to sometimes go against your own heart, to stay with your your own preferences. You will go against your own heart to stay with people that you're comfortable with. Wisdom will tell you all cultures are broken. All cultures need grace. Wisdom will tell you the Holy Spirit is just as active in one person as the next, in one race as the other, in one culture as the next. The Holy Spirit, God is the producer of change and conversion in his people. And he is willing to cross every boundary. There is no boundary that is too undignified for God to cross to seek you. That is an amazing comfort, isn't it? Now, the second point is, that's the first part of conversion. God will cross every boundary to get to his people. He will, cross, he will go to every length. That means we should go to every length. Now, uh, the second point is then, if, the, if conversion is upward, it's also outward. Conversion takes place in the context of relationships. Relationship building between people, people who are very different from you. It could be the person next to you, very different from you. It could be the person in a different community very different from you. Conversion always takes place in the context of relationships. This Ethiopian asks three questions. And all three questions will tell us how the Spirit of God uses relationships to bring about conversion. Right? Verse 31, the Ethiopian asks, How can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? In verse 34, he asks, Tell me, please, who is this prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself Or somebody else? Verse 36, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Three very important questions. We're going to walk through them. First question, verse 27. You have uh, this question coming from the eunuch. The eunuch, we have to understand this eunuch, who he is, okay? He's an important official. The text says that he is in charge of the treasury of uh, Ethiopia, the whole country of Ethiopia. He is in charge. He reports directly to the queen of Ethiopia. That makes him the minister. He's part of the cabinet. He's uh, the minister of finance. And that means that this is a position of power. He reported directly to the queen. That meant that he was literate. He was educated in a very illiterate society. In an uneducated society, he was educated. In an illiterate society, it was an oral culture back then, he was actually uh, literate and educated. And he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, Scrolls, to write a scroll, we didn't have printing press back then. To be able to purchase a scroll of an ancient text, you had to be wealthy. So this man, because they're very expensive, so this man is wealthy, he's educated, he's literate, and he's got, he's got money, he's got power, he's got status. But as intelligent as he was, as wealthy as he was, he couldn't understand what he was reading. He was confused by what he was reading, and it was at that moment that Philip... As he's trying to make sense of the scroll, Philip runs up to him and starts to explain. He's able to explain. He comes alongside the chariot, and he says, he says to him, he says, do you know what you're reading? Now, the Ethiopian could have said, who, who are you? You're, you're like this uneducated, lower-class guy. He could have said that. I mean, that's what they said back then. If you're riding in a chariot, you had money, and you had power. And he was. He was, he was protected he could have said, who are you? What right do you have to come and act like you could understand something that I don't? He could have said, I, I got it. I'll, I'll figure it out on my own. I've got money. I can figure this out. I'm an educated man. I've got resources. I can figure this out. I'm self-sufficient. I could take care of myself. Instead, he admits his ignorance. Tremendous humility. A lot of us could use that humility here. Tremendous ignorance. And he admits it. He says, I'm confused. And he asks for help. And that should speak to us. Why? Because here's this worldly man, irreligious man, who turns to the word of God. I mean, that's better than a lot of us. This is an irreligious man turning to the word of God and saying, I need help. Somebody needs to explain this to me. And uh, that means that he had to let go of his ego. Uh, It means that he had to put aside his intelligence. He had to put aside his status and wealth and go to a, a middle class, lower class Jew and say, I need you to explain this to me. Please explain this. And that means that conversion, the prerequisite to conversion is you have to kick out your ego. you got to kick the ego out and let other people in. Kick the ego out, let other people in. Deep relationships. That's what it takes to have deep relationships. A lot of us so you're asking yourself, why can't I make good friends here? You're either not letting go of your ego. That's getting in the way, and it's too big. It's too big for other people to get in. You've got to let other people in. And uh, verse 31, this man lets Philip into the chariot. Uh, he lets him in. It says that, you know, basically the chariot must have slowed down, and he lets the man in. Uh, don't just come to church and not let anybody in. Don't just come to church and and complain why you're not getting in. Let other people in. You know, um, worship is absolutely necessary. Friends, uh, I'm a pastor. I got to tell you, worship is critical in our lives, but it's not sufficient for your growth. If you don't bolster that worship with deep relationships that are getting in and speaking into you, First of all, you know they're speaking into you if your ego is getting hurt. Right? Um, if, e- if it's touching your ego, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a surgeon going in. It's piercing. A surgeon has to cut you open. It hurts. Right? So uh, when a surgeon gets in there, he, the thing is that if a good surgeon will know exactly where to go. And so if the Holy Spirit is using other people to get into you, what do you think he's doing? He's doing surgery. Right? And so if you let your ego aside and let them in, you're letting God work. That's how conversion happens, right? Worship is absolutely necessary. You can get by to a certain degree letting the pastor be the preacher, be the conduit for that surgery, but it's not sufficient for growth. You have to let other people in. To let other people in doesn't mean, okay, Uh, Guys, I've been doing church for a very long time, so I'm kind of an authority on this, all right? Kind of, right? It doesn't mean I'm hanging out with lots of people at church, okay? It's not less than that. It's way more than that. Hanging out with lots of people at church to a degree where they're now able to speak into you, they're able to hone into your life and tell you, you got a problem. When you can do that, And you can do that to the point where your ego is put aside and saying, I need to listen to this and submit to this. Then you're letting people in. That's a lot. In fact, you know how much it is? It's impossible unless the Holy Spirit is working in your life. That's how you know God is working. If you say, you know what, screw you. Can I say that here at church? Can I say that? Because we think that way. If you say screw you in your heart, what you're saying is you're not rejecting the person you're actually rejecting God's work into your life. Does that put people challenging you in a different light? I hope it does, okay? Now, uh, very few people come to faith or maturity or wisdom on their own. Very few people do that. If you try to do it on your own, you're going to end up like this Ethiopian man. You're going to go home to where you're comfortable and you're going to forget and you're going to let it go. That's not what this man does. This man, you know God's working in his life. You need community. That's what we mean by community. Listen, I love fire pits. I love, uh, I love nice dinners. I love getting invited to those things by people at church, but that's not what I mean by community. Not here, right? When we say that community-centered, Right as a value at Metro, what we mean by that is that we want to see change happening in the context of community. Repentance having, happening in the context of community. That's what we mean. You need to be willing to admit that there are things that, about you right? that your pedigree cannot get you, that your education or even your family background, what you were, the way you were brought up, it will only get you so far. It will not get you there. There are things that your education cannot get you, your wealth cannot buy you, your position cannot earn for you. You have to admit that. Verse 31, the Ethiopian says, well, how can I understand this unless someone explains it to me? Verse 34, he says, tell me, who is this prophet talking about? Well, you know what Philip does? Philip is gracious. He explains. Let me explain it to you. That's what he says. In both cases, this man, he's not asking Because he's like smart and he's trying to like pontificate. That's not what he's doing. He's asking with sincere inquiry. He needs to know. Right? That's what's going on there. Verse 36, that last question why shouldn't I be baptized? Why didn't he just say, uh, you know, okay, got me to a certain point. Now I get it. Uh, I'm gonna go baptize myself now. Right? That sounds kind of ridiculous if you grew up in a church, right? But he could have easily said, you know, listen, I got God in my life. I want God in my life. It's between me and him, very personal. We're in a Western society, right, very personal. Uh, you've done your part. I'm going to drop you off, give you some cash, you know, so you can head back, you know, I don't think cabs back then or find some hailsome chariot to get you back there or something like that, right? He doesn't say that. He says, why can't I be baptized here by you now? Why can't you just baptize me now? You know what, you know what baptism is? What he's saying is, I just had an experience sitting here with you. I think I get it. Will you evaluate me? Will you validate me? You saw me in my need and you helped me. You walked me through, which makes you my friend. That means you're trustworthy. Will you now baptize me? To be baptized means to be evaluated. It's a public profession. It's a public profession of an inward thing that's going on. And what you're saying is I need to be evaluated and validated. It's why baptism is always done in person. It's always done as a communal act. That's right? why we're all here witnessing it and saying, "As a witness, I validate that this person's conversion experience is real. That's why we do that. Right We all need somebody else, outside of ourselves, to interpret our experience, our inward experience. Right? What you're really saying is, "Listen, you know me, is what I'm going through right now real? And is it right? Is it? Or is it like, am I, am I askew? Is am I changing wrong? Am I changing at all? What is the worst thing about me? And is it growing? Am I changing, in a Godward direction? You know, babies. Um, babies when they're born. I mean, you know, they're alive. Um, when are they alive? Is a question. It's not really a scientific question, but when do you know a baby is alive? Do you know a baby's alive after nine months? No, right? you know that that baby's been alive since it's been in the womb. At some point 36 to 40 weeks earlier, that's when you know. And it's until 30, when 36 to 40 weeks later when the baby fin- finally comes out of the womb, right, and it, and it starts to cry, right, everyone is celebrating. That's when you know, right, that's when the public is able to say, yes, now this baby is alive. we know that the baby came to life way earlier you see right that public coming out of the womb that's baptism new life a profession an admission of that growth in jesus christ always happens in the context of community because if you think that you're just a product of your own choice to go to god on your own you're never going to change you will never change you will never grow We are a product of the Holy Spirit. That's point one. We are a product of the Holy Spirit working through godly friends, close friends who are trustworthy in the word of God in our lives. That's what changes you. That's what will change you. God's instrument of grace. God's instrument of peace. God's instrument of validation God's instrument of evaluation, God's instrument of leading and directing and guiding. You know, Philip was taken away by the Holy Spirit, right? That means the Holy Spirit is always leading and guiding and directing. Well, how does that happen to you? It happens through the context of other people. That's the second point. Before we get to the last point, how do we make this practical? All of you here have somebody here that you view as that type of friend, I hope. If not, there's your application. You need to find somebody. You need to, you need to kick the ego out, and you need to let the person in. You need to let people in. right? You need to be able to say, oh, this, getting in with this person, it could hurt. It could be painful, but it'll be real. And I need to hear it. I need to listen to it. And that means that I have to make significant changes in my life and hold myself accountable to this person. You know, friends, you're, you, hold, you hold yourself Accountable to much lesser types of people. When you hold yourself accountable to your boss, does that boss know you well? Does that boss care enough about you? No! But you do it. Why? Because something's important to you. Obviously, the money's important. Obviously, the pay stub is important. Obviously, the validation is important. Every six months to a year, you meet with that boss, and that boss is gonna tell you you've got certain flaws, you've got certain talents. And you say, oh, and you, you take notes, and you go, home. Oh, I need to work on this, and you read books about it. And you could do that for so little, for, for only a few decades before you walk away. You're too old to even keep doing that work. And eventually, when that boss finds someone better and younger, they will replace you. I'm credible enough to say that. I know that. But you won't submit yourself to somebody who cares for your life and your character, and you will have that for all time? That's foolish. Don't do that. I'm trying to speak to you as a friend and a brother. Don't do that. Conversion. So that's the application. you got to find somebody. you got to have people in your life. College students, you know, we, we have enough college students, I need to say this, you know, right now is that time for you. You know, right now is that time where you can say, I think you're it, and they can say, I think you're it, right? And that means you got to do that scary thing where you acknowledge that, hey, I'm going to entrust myself to you. I'm going to entrust myself to my pastors. I'm going to entrust myself to my leaders. Can you do that? If you do, you're going to grow. Because the Holy Spirit is present, leading you and guiding you through them. You're going to grow. People who are outside of college growing, you've got people. You need to find people. You need to submit yourself to those people. You need to grow with those people right? Stop thinking about, when's it my turn to speak? That's the ego kicking out the relationship. You got to kick the ego aside. You got to let people in, okay? Now, lastly, conversion is inward. Uh, verse, this is the guts of the story, okay? This is what makes a story an amazing narrative. Verse 32, this Ethiopian, he's reading from a particular passage in Isaiah. In fact, he's reading Isaiah 53. We know that because it's in there in the text. That's what he's reading. He was reading a particular part, verses 7 to 8. It says he he was reading the part that says he was led like a sheep to the slaughter and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth so the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture that comes from isaiah 53 he's reading from the scroll of isaiah when all of a sudden as he's reading and he's like who is this about and he's confused and philip catches up to him and that timing was perfect look at the look at the amazing intentionality of god the timing is perfect for philip to catch him and here's philip explaining and it made sense this is that climactic moment in this man's life where everything starts to make sense in his life. Why? This man was powerful. This man was wealthy. This man was educated. This man was successful, but he paid a huge price to get there. He was a eunuch. You see, if, you're, if you were a commoner uh, and you, wanna, you were kind of born in a certain lower class and you wanted to rise, uh, you got to pay a price you got to work very, very hard. You got to make it to the top. But if you want to get in, if you want to get certain clearances, security clearances, other types of clearances in that ancient time, in order to reside among the royalty, especially if the royalty was female, you had to make sacrifices to prove that you were worthy and that you meant no harm. And so you had to pay with blood. Eunuchs had to be castrated. And it's not just about the physical castration that proved anything. I mean, obviously, there's blood there. That meant this person is trustworthy to the female royalty. But what he was really doing is what he was saying was, I'm going to put having a family as less important than you and serving you. I'm going to put having children and descendants. In an era when having children and descendants was the most important thing in those ancient times, he's saying, I'm putting my family, my legacy, my, uh, my wealth, because to have children was to be wealthy because they could work your fields and work your land. I said, I'm going to put my children aside, my legacy aside, my retirement and savings because they were your 401k back then, right? I'm going to put them aside. You lived with your children when you got old. I'm going to put my body aside. It's like saying, I was cut up, and I'm willing to die for you. Now you can trust me because I won't mean any harm for you. I sacrificed for you. Now, a lot of us are sitting here and saying, well, that's really inhumane. That's really, that's really primitive. That's really inhumane. Really? that really shouldn't shock you because we live... Uh, especially in this city, in Philadelphia, one of the largest cities in this country, one of the largest, most profiled cities now in the world. Think about this. On one hand, it's very hard to develop any real relationships with anybody. It's really hard to build intimacy with anybody without it coming at a cost to your work. And on the flip side, it's hard to advance anybody's career without without paying with your family or your children or your body. You see? To this day, we are doing those very same things. We're sacrificing our families. We're sacrificing our children. We're sacrificing our bodies, our health, our well-being for wealth. We're doing that now. Why would it be inhumane when it's not, it shouldn't shock you? So, uh, you don't, and you don't realize those sacrifices until much later when it's too late. You don't realize that. This Ethiopian, he made it to the top. He went all the way. But he's spiritually empty because he made these sacrifices He's spiritually empty because they weren't satisfactory. They didn't satisfy him. And, and so uh, they weren't satis- deeply satisfying in the soul. He's spiritually empty. And he's so empty that now he's starting to search other places. He's starting to read other literature. And he travels hundreds of miles to Jerusalem. And he's now on his way back. He's, he was at the temple in Jerusalem, and he's on his way back. So that means that this man, he took va- some vacation, some personal time, right? He left his job, traveled a great distance, weathered the elements, right, in a chariot just to worship in Jerusalem. He ignored the temples of his culture. He ignored the religions and the faiths of his own people to worship the God of the Bible. It's because he's tired. It's because he's struggling with his work. He's struggling in business, in his finances, in his affairs, he may be wealthy, but he paid a price with his body and his family, and he's dissatisfied. He's still dissatisfied, and he's lonely. And so he finally gets to Jerusalem, only to realize that eunuchs are not allowed to into uh, the temple. They're not allowed to enter. They're prohibited from entering the temple according to temple law. Jewish temple law forbids anybody who's sexually mutilated to enter. Jewish temple law forbids anybody who's broken physically to be able to enter. So he can't, there's, a, there's a place that's reserved only for those who are physically mutilated, right, or physically broken. You can't get past that in the temple. And so here's this person, irreligious, a non-Jew, traveling hundreds of miles, sacrificing his work, sacrificing uh, his standing, sacrificing the religion and the faiths of his forefathers, his own people, to come all the way to the temple because he heard, because he read. And when he gets to the temple, he's not allowed to enter in. Only to realize he can't enter. And because there's nothing he could do, now he feels rejected. Now he feels hopeless, broken. He sacrificed to the wrong gods already, to the wrong gods of wealth and power and status to get in. And he still isn't in And so there's a sense of rejection and dejection. There's a sense of he's lost his dignity. He's lost his masculinity. I mean, he's sacrificed his masculinity for this. All to get in, and yet he's still not in. And so wealth and education and status, it gave him certain types of access, but not the access that he needs, you see not the access that he needs cosmically, spiritually, and so he's spiritually empty. You know, Malcolm Muggeridge, he's a British journalist, one of the most famous British journalists who came to faith as a Christian. He died as a Christian. And he wrote tremendous, uh, m- many, many memoirs about how he came to faith. And one of the things he says is, he says something like this. He says, you know, um, a lot of people will look at me now at the end of my career, and they'll say, there is a man of wealth because I have money. There is a man, I'm at a certain tax uh, rate, in my country. He says, there, he says, that money will get you to enjoy lots of different types of pleasure. And he says, yes, this man must have arrived. And he says, having that, as I walk down the streets, some people may actually notice me and say, that's the famous British journalist. And he says, that's what it means to have fame. And he says, yet, I beg you, none of that is worth even a drop of the living water that is Jesus Christ. I beg you to take hold of that. Denzel Washington, famous actor, many people, probably one of the best actors in our generation. Uh, in a, a t- NPR correspondent, Terry Gross, years ago, uh, he, he shared about his, his spiritual re-experience and rediscovery of the gospel. He talks about that. He's, he grew up as a child of a minister, and he rejected ministry. He rejected all that because he said he grew up in a, a Pentecostal minister, and, and he, he, he thought it was too hokey, and he walked away from it, and he said, I indulged in everything. And yet he grew empty. And so in his emptiness, he started to look for all, he said he studied every different world religion. And he says, no matter where I turned, all the roads led me back to the Bible. And then he starts talking about the difference between Christianity and religious Christianity. It's an amazing discovery. Some of us need to discover that as well. This Ethiopian is trying to get into, he's trying to get in, he's trying to get access because that's, that's what we're looking for, access. And what Malcolm Muggeridge or Denzel Washington is saying is that there's no wealth or education that can give you the access that only God can give. And that's why all roads do lead back to the Bible. And here's this man reading the Word, reading the Scripture. You see? And so he's returning from the temple, he's returning from his pilgrimage, he's in this chariot, and he's pouring through the book of Isaiah. He's just struck by the book of Isaiah, and he's into the chapter, Isaiah's 66 chapters, right? He's pouring through the book of Isaiah, he's in the 50s, and he's trying to make sense of this book, and it's in the same section that you see, Isaiah chapter 56, that's our call to worship, I'm just going to read Isaiah chapter 56, that portion that we read. Let no foreigner right? This Ethiopian's a foreigner. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me. Because this man, he feels excluded. He says, the Lord has excluded me. But the Bible says, let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, the Lord has excluded me. And he's confused. Let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. But here he is. He's saying, I'm confused. That's what the Bible says here, and yet that's how I feel. For this is what the Lord says. It's a promise to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, the eunuchs who come to the temple to worship, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name that is better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. You see, that's very important because eunuchs, they were cut. They were cut They were cut from their manhood. They were cut from their families. They were cut from their people to serve some other king. And he realized at some point in his life he was serving the wrong king. And so he's saying, but now I'm only a dry tree. Now I'm just dried up. I'm worthless cosmically. And he gets all the way to the temple and he's trying to get in. He's saying, this Bible, this passage is teaching me that there is access and I, I can't get in. So he's confused, and he's pouring through these chapters, he's saying, I don't understand this. To the eunuchs, God promises, I will give them an everlasting name. Why can't I get in? He's totally confused. It's why he says, how can I understand this unless someone explains this to them, to me? He's saying, the Bible says it right here. I don't have to be like this eunuch. I don't have to be a dry tree. I'm not cut off. How can I have a name that's better than sons? The difference between a son and a eunuch is what? A eunuch has to sacrifice to prove his worth. A son, he just inherits worth. He just gets it. He just receives it, right? In an age when the most important thing, I mentioned this previously, the most important thing is to have sons. How can you have a better name than a son as a eunuch? A guy who doesn't have access. Please explain this to me, he says. I mean, I left my father. I left my family, right? That's what he's saying. How can I, that means I'm no longer a son. How can I have a better name than sons? I'm not going to have descendants or sons. How can I have a better name than that? And then he comes across Isaiah 53, and he reads that part, verses 7 to 8, right? He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? Who can speak of his descendants his children, for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. The eunuch is asking a very important question. He's saying, I became a eunuch to gain access to the king. And so I went all the way. I ascended to the heights. But this chapter is talking about a servant, a suffering servant. Who is this suffering servant who voluntarily became a eunuch? I was a eunuch in order to become a king. Who is this king who became a eunuch? He was cut off for people like me. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. Who took my place? And all of a sudden, as he's pouring through this, Philip shows up and says, Hey, you need someone to explain this to you? That's first of all that's weird, right? But it's amazing. That's the Holy Spirit at work, see? The eunuch asks, is Isaiah writing about himself or someone else? Who's he talking about? And Philip says, "Let me explain this to you. It's all about Jesus." Sin is Us substituting ourselves for God. That's why we always feel that we can make it on our own. Because only God can make it on his own. Every single time you try to handle things on your own, you're trying to be like God. Salvation is God substituting Himself for us. That's Jesus. In Jesus Christ. God came down. That's grace. And he paid the price. That's grace. And he was cut off. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what he says. In other words, I'm cut off. You've cut me off. I've become the eunuch. In other words, I became spiritually cut off. I became a spiritual eunuch. Now I need access because I've been forsaken. Why? So we would have the access that we need, that we've been searching for all our lives. On the cross, Jesus cries out, I've lost access. Why? So you could have access. On the cross, Jesus Christ lost his name. Why? He was forsaken as a son. Why? So you could have a better name than sons. On the cross, Jesus Christ lost his glory. We're constantly working for glory. That's why we have egos. That's why our egos get hurt, right? Why? Why did he sacrifice his glory? Why? So that we would have ultimate glory. On the cross, Jesus Christ was cut off and he was torn to pieces. I mean, he was not only, he was completely cut off physically, spiritually. Why? So you could be put together. You could be restored. On the cross, Jesus Christ was rejected. Why? So you could be accepted. On the cross, Jesus Christ became unclean be, to be forbidden to access the temple is because we're unclean. That's why he couldn't get in. That's why the unit couldn't get in. Jesus Christ couldn't get in. He was cast out. Why? So we could have access. We could be in. We could be clean. His body just completely ripped apart and his heart completely broken for us. Now, Some of you are sacrificing or have sacrificed greatly. You know, um, you sacrifice relationally in a relational way because you want access. But the problem is you feel broken. You feel broken by your looks. You feel broken by your figure. Some of you, you feel like the only way that you can have that type of love or acceptance is to give up your purity. And so you feel unclean and shameful, guilty, broken. Some of us, broken physically, we're sick, we're suffering uh, because we're just not physically as capable as other people. Some of us, we're broken emotionally. We've been hurt and damaged by other people, maybe because we've been craving love from them, and we've just been broken by that. People betrayed us, hurt us. We're punished by that. Sometimes the very people that you love hurt you. Say things, you know, maybe your parents, maybe other friends, maybe a boyfriend or a girlfriend back in the day. They said certain things that you will never forget that they said about you. And so you're broken by that. This passage is about comfort. It's a promise. Plunge yourself into the grace of Jesus who bled on the cross for you, he was broken, he was hurt, he was damaged, Things were. he was mocked and insulted, not just behind his back, but in front of his face. He was thrown at, spit at, tortured, bled, died, abandoned by his friends, betrayed by his friends. He did that for us. He is the ultimate friend, the ultimate lover, the ultimate brother. We have to let that truth wash us clean. And if you let that truth shape you, it will make you whole. That's what's going to change you. Access means what? When you're in with somebody, what does that mean? There is comfort. When you have access to somebody, there's safety. You feel safe around that person. When you have access to somebody, there's dialogue. You can hear from them. You can speak to them. When you have access to somebody, You feel refreshed. You feel restored. When you have access to to somebody, you feel included. There's an inclusion. When you have access to somebody, there's a wholeness. There's a family nature to that, right? Because you have love, forgiveness. It's all assured, guaranteed. It's all part of the package. Jesus Christ says, you will have a new name. You will be better than sons. A son is what? A son can mess up. He'll never stop being a son. Right? He says, you have a better name than that. It'll be even better than that. That's going to give you joy. That's going to give you peace. That's going to give you comfort. That's going to change you. Man, if you let this Bible, if you interpret it the wrong way, it's going to hammer you. And that's like subversion. You know? And it will bury you right but when you see what the spirit of god does upward right through your in the context of your relationships outward and then to heal you inwardly you're going to be melted into the grace of god and you will see how treasured you are by jesus and then you will treasure him right we love him because he first loved us right we will treasure him that's conversion that's going to give you joy. What's the immediate sign of change? One, look at the text. Middle-aged, lawful, like religious, Jewish, middle-income, low-income man takes a sexually messed up black man and says, you are my friend and my brother. And he leads him to the water, and there they are, dunking in the water together. Isn't that amazing? Washing him clean, Right? The gospel is going to transcend race and sex and status and class and wealth and education. Are you doing it? Are you practicing that? Secondly, this Ethiopian, right, who had every right, he's royalty, he's humbled. Incredibly humbled. He says, I need you to help me. Are you doing that? Is the gospel humbling you? Not so that you can give wisdom, but receive it? And then, the, and then there's wisdom. He says, wait a second, why can't I be baptized? There's wisdom. All of a sudden, there's a confidence there, a courage there. He's certain. Are you certain? At the least, you get that. You don't get less than that. You get so much more than that. In the context of deep relationships, in the context of rich relationships, you will change over and over and over again. What are the fingerprints of the Spirit of God massaging the gospel in your life? What are the fingerprints of him working the gospel and molding you and shaping you? Are there fingerprints? Let's pray.